We come this morning to the close of this short and very beautiful, delightful book of Ruth. Ruth has proposed, Boaz has accepted the proposal and promised to fulfill his role as a redeemer. And after dealing with the rights of the nearer in line kinsmen last week, the marriage between Ruth and Boaz as a matter of civil law was finalized. There were witnesses. There was was the blessing of the elders and of the community. And so what we want to do today in the closing sermon on the book of Ruth is look at the fruit of this marriage in the clan of Elimelech, that is, in the family of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, that is, family with a lowercase f on your outline, family with a lowercase f, and we'll look at the fruit of this marriage for the family of God and even the human family as a whole. That's family with an uppercase F on your outline. So, first, family with a lowercase F. So we're in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Here, here the marriage is consummated. Boaz, the redeemer now, seeks to become the lever, the one who raises up offspring for Elimelech. And for Elimelech's son, Malan, Malan is Ruth's deceased husband. And so the text says the Lord enabled her to conceive and to give birth to a son. This is only the second time in this book, only the second time where the Lord is said to act. The first was way back in the first in chapter one, with Naomi still in Moab. And there we were told that the Lord had visited his people by breaking the famine and providing bread for them. Here the Lord acts by enabling Ruth to conceive. And so notice these bracket the book, a sort of inclusio. The Lord acts then for plenty and for progeny. He acts for land and for seed. He acts to restore barrenness, the barrenness of the land, and to give to Ruth, who, remember, was barren for ten years in Moab, a son. And here the story should cause us to think, the story conjures for us all the barren wombs in Israel, starting with Sarah and down through Hannah, culminating in Elizabeth. The Lord gives conception out of barrenness. And that is for us a picture, an image. It's a foretaste of the virgin birth of Christ. It's Christmas in advance when Ruth conceives. That's why this text is an Advent text. I was going to preach on it anyway but it just so happens to fall on the second Sunday of Advent. right? And so we can see in these births out of the barren wombs in Israel, God pointing ahead to the virgin birth of Christ. And by that birth, God resurrects the world out of its barren fruitlessness of sin and death. And here now in our text right now, this birth, of this child is a kind of resurrection of a dead family line. And thus it's cause for great celebration in the text. The women in verse 14 address Naomi. 
Now remember something. These are the same women who greeted Naomi on her return from Moab. And they heard Naomi tell them, you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter, she said. She went away full. The Lord brought her back empty. And so we should see in this sort of a narrative pattern. From famine back to fullness. From bitterness back to joy. That is the design of God in the depth of your darkness and perplexity. In the depth of your own struggles, God empties us out so that he might fill us back up again. And it's important for us to grasp and to find out in the midst of our own confusion what God is doing and and to cling to this. So if you're disheartened, you need to defiantly assert, for that's what faith is, a kind of defiant assertion, that God is indeed at work to fill me up, to bring me from famine to fullness. This is the basic pattern of descent and ascent, which Jesus himself followed in redeeming us. And that pattern stamps itself on the life of the faithful very vividly in this book. So the women here say, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a redeemer. They had prayed that the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And the beginning of that answer is now there in Ruth's baby. But I want you to notice something in the text. It's subtle. The women say, this day the Lord has not left you, Naomi, without a son. And in verse 17, they say, Naomi has a son. Now, it's Ruth's baby. Ruth's the one who was pregnant. Ruth has the baby. But he's the redeemer of the whole extended clan. Right? That's when, why when Ruth was on the threshing floor with Boaz, she said, you are our family's redeemer. Spread your garment over me. So the Lord, notice, the Lord has not left you, Naomi, without a redeemer. I mean, Boaz is a redeemer. But notice what's suddenly happening here. Now the narrative shifts forward, shifts into the future, a future redeemer, a future kinsman for Naomi, present in the baby. And so the women pray the same benediction that the elders prayed for Boaz. They say, may he become famous. May he become famous throughout Israel. Again, this this is probably, you know, standard boilerplate language, conventional language. But the prayer of the women here shifts the narrative to the future where the Redeemer's future greatness will be unveiled. May he become famous in Israel. And so this little child, they say, this child will renew your life and sustain your old age. Somehow through this child, Naomi is going to experience the hesed of God, the kindness of God, which the book is largely about. And she's going to experience it as nourishing, as something which is life-giving. That is God's intention to us. His kindness is to nourish and to restore our lives out of barrenness. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, 
and have it abundantly. So Naomi's going to move from barrenness and hopelessness out of that by the nourishment of the Redeemer. And the women heap now, now that we're at the end of the book, they heap this extraordinary praise on Ruth. They say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, that word for loves you, you can guess it, hesed. Your daughter who loves you is better to you than seven sons. This is an amazing thing to say in a Jewish male-dominated culture. This foreign woman, this Ruth, who loves you is better than seven sons. Right? This in a culture where sons were esteemed above all. Right? These are the same women who you can remember in chapter 1 ignored, ignored Ruth when she came back. The two women came walking into Bethlehem and they said, is this Naomi? And then Naomi herself said, with Ruth standing by her side, I came back empty. She ignored Ruth. Now these same women at the end of the story declare that Ruth is highly favored. It echoes the language of the angel later to Mary. Hail, highly favored one. Greatly esteemed. Boaz, all the townspeople know of her nobility. And so they pronounce her better than seven sons. Seven is the number of divine fullness. Again, this is another way of saying, Naomi, you've suffered bitter losses and setbacks. But Ruth is better than seven sons. And so through her, God is going to fill your life back up again. Now this Ruth, the Moabitess, through this divine gift of conception, is the mother of the Redeemer. And the women, they name the child Obed. It's a significant name. It means servant. Because the Redeemer is going to have to sacrificially serve the redeemed, even as we saw in Boaz, at great cost. Now, the book of Ruth could end right here. And if it ended right here, the story would have a certain completeness. But it goes on. And we're told this. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And then the author backs up and gives us a fuller genealogy beginning in verse 18. And that brings me to the second point, the family with a capital F. I'm sure you can see that in your text. The text ends with a genealogy and with no comments after the genealogy. Now this might seem strange, even anticlimactic, especially if you're reading Ruth the way a lot of modern people would read a, a romance story. I mean, after all, genealogies are boring to most folks. We often just skip them. I think I mentioned, it might have been on a Sunday school class, that I taught a Bible study years ago on the book of Genesis, which is just loaded with genealogies. There's genealogies all over the place. And one of the guys in the study would, would plead with me. He would actually call me on the phone on the afternoon of the study and say, you're, you're not, you're not going to go over all those names in this chapter tonight, are you? In a good-natured way, he would beg me to skip the genealogies. Of course, 
I went over every name in every list. I said, yeah, I said, who should we delete out of your genealogy? Doesn't bode well for you when someone in your genealogy is deleted. But I went over every name and every list because to the Hebrew people, these lists are critical. I hope you caught that. That Matthew 1 genealogy is magnificent. Right? We're not, this is no mythology about Jesus Christ. We have his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. So these are, as I've said before, these people in these lists, they are your mothers and fathers. This is your ancestry.com. And so the list should matter to us. But this list in Ruth, this list is really important. This genealogy is the most important point of the book of Ruth. Right? I'm sure when you talk to someone about the book of Ruth, the first thing they say is, man, that genealogy at the end is awesome. Right? That's what they should be saying, but they don't. The genealogy is the point of the book. It is surely the reason the book is in Holy Scripture. Look, there are a lot of sad stories in Israel of widows. There are lots of people who, uh, whose lives suffered the kinds of hardships that Naomi suffered. Right? There were lots of people who found redeemers to raise up offspring and seed. That's why the institution is in the Torah. If that's all that was the story was about, it's not even that unique. Right? The, the, the story of the book of Ruth is here because of the genealogy. Because of where the story is situated. And this genealogy then teaches us a great deal. It begins with Perez, we mentioned last week. He's the offspring of Judah and another foreign woman, Tamar. Right? In a context where Tamar had a husband who died, similar to, similar to Naomi. And Tamar was seeking a lever, someone to provide offspring. So every single person in the story is a parasite. It turns out. Every character, all the people at the gates, all the women, they're probably all descendants of Perez. He's a prominent ancestor of their clan. And if you, if you look at this genealogy, the list has ten generations. Again, that's another number of fullness and completion. Noah's genealogy in Genesis, ten generations. Abraham's genealogy in Genesis, ten generations. It's a stylistic point, and by that point alone, we know the author is saying some, there's something momentous here. You may have noticed in the gospel lesson this morning, Matthew's gospel breaks the genealogy of Jesus up into three sets of 14 generations, each bracketing a crucial era. Right? Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to the exile, 14. The exile to Christ, 14. And so here... After ten generations, we get to David. You see that, right, at the end of the book of Ruth. Ten generations, King David. Here's an alternative title for the book of Ruth. Getting to David. The whole book is about getting to David. Right? We learned at the very beginning that the book took place in the days of the judges when there was no king in Israel. No king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So why is this book in Holy Scripture? 
Well, it's part of the royal backstory of David's ancestors. But notice, they, of course, didn't know it. Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz, is the grandfather of King David. And that makes Ruth the Moabitess the great-grandmother of King David. And more than that, being ancestors of David means they are ancestors of Christ, our kinsman redeemer. And again, they have no idea of this in the context of their lives. Now, we read the genealogy from Matthew's gospel this morning and the role of these women. The women are hidden in the genealogy here in Ruth, but Matthew makes them visible. Matthew surfaces them. Judah is the father of Perez by Tamar, Matthew tells us. Solomon is the father of Boaz. You can see that in verse 21 in our text. But Matthew adds this. Solomon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz's mother is Rahab the Canaanite. The prostitute. The one who hid the spies. You want to know why Boaz had from the beginning such a generous, open-hearted spirit toward a foreign, strange woman? Well, his mother was Rahab. It's hard to see how he wouldn't have been open. God's work in Rahab's life, and then Rahab's work as a mother in Israel in her son Boaz, or perhaps Boaz is her grandson. Occasionally these genealogies skip a generation. But I think there's no indication that there's much of a gap in this one. So you have God working in Rahab, the mother, preparing Boaz. And then you see the kind of man Boaz is. And I I do think there's counsel and advice here for Christian parents. right? Boaz was raised to have a kind of openness and generosity toward the strange, toward the outsider, toward the different. He was raised the opposite of xenophobic, right? If Boaz was going to err, he was going to err on the side of generosity and an open hand to the stranger, right? And that's how our children should be raised. They shouldn't be raised with a fearful suspicion of contamination all the time. They should be raised with a great kind of Catholicity, a great kind of universality, The opposite of xenophobia, because the gospel is a gospel for every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It's an intrinsically Catholic, universal gospel. Right? There is no institution on the planet as diverse as the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Right? The Christian religion has been, for at least the last 20 or 30 years, any sociologist will tell you, a brown-skinned, southern hemispheric religion. That's where the center of gravity of Christianity has been for a while. We tend to forget that in the West. But in any case, we want to raise children, and we want to be people opened out to the world because Christ came to save the world. And Boaz was clearly raised this way by Rahab, herself an outsider. And so Matthew and his genealogy continues. He says, Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth. There it is, Matthew chapter 1. Ruth is now in the gospel. She's in the lineage of Jesus. She's part of the Christmas story. Boaz and Ruth are ancestors of David and David's greater son. 
So just, just think about this from a purely human point of view now. From a human historical point of view, we could say this. No famine, no flight to Moab. Right? No flight to Moab, no death at Milan. No death of Milan, no widowed Ruth. No widowed Ruth returning, then no marriage to Boaz. No marriage to Boaz, no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse, no Jesse, no David, no David, no human ancestry for Jesus Christ. It's a lot of dominoes, I know. But all of that famine and all of that flight and all of that trauma is not outside the purview of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, even though there was no sign of it. That's where I think this book is very comforting and encouraging to us. So this Obed, this servant, points ahead not only to David, but to the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, the Redeemer, Christ the Lord. It's an Advent text. And so, now this genealogy, at the end, forces us to see the story in a new light. It's like, again, you get to the end of a good novel, and you read the last few pages, and you realize, oh, I have to go back and reread the book. Right? That's what this genealogy is doing here. And I want to consider this for a few minutes, because I think it's very practical, and I think it affects how we think and how we live. So first... Think about this for a moment. Think about the book. Hopefully you've read it. It's pretty mundane. I mean, there are no miracles. I mean, there are some remarkable providences, but there are no miracles traditionally understood. There's no divine revelation in the book given to anyone. It's mostly about widows and land and gleaning and family ties with some understated relational dynamics tossed in. It takes place in a very small town. There are no kings. There are no queens. There are no great people. There are no movers or shakers at this point. As Paul would say, there aren't many wise. There aren't many powerful. There aren't many noble. Just ordinary people, decent people, trying to live. Not only trying to live, though, these people are trying to deal with awful blows and setbacks. Bitter losses. Very dark Providences. They're just trying to get their bearings, it seems, and in some halting way, follow God. Now, they can't see what we see. I mean, think about this. The characters in this book, they can't even see ahead to David. That's still two or three generations away, much less see forward to Christ. But in and through these ordinary people, people like, like us, And their ordinary lives, often life is as boring and mundane as a genealogy. God is at work. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. Of course, we all believe God is at work in the details of our lives. But this book says God is at work often against sense perception. He is at work, sometimes it seems, against all reason. He's at work. He's at work in the irrational things in your life, the things that make no sense at all. He's at work in the things that appear to be against his own basic goodness. Those are the kinds of things that Naomi and Ruth suffered. 
And because he is, you have three ordinary people, right? Not super saints or anything, but three, three people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. They are now deeply woven into the tapestry of the world's redemption. And they die having no idea about it. It's not like Naomi and Ruth on their deathbeds can say, well... At least all that pain and agony is going to lead to the Davidic king and eventually to the Christ, right? They're going to die, and there's going to be, you know, an ancient uh, rabbi by their bed, and they're going to explain to him their lives, and it's going to be an inexplicable mystery. Same thing with you and I, by the way. We have no idea when we die what the ripple effects are going to be. So I want to conclude here with four practical summary points of what I think we can take from the whole book. First, the first one's this. The gift of Obed to the family, small f family, to Naomi, matters only because that family is part of the family of David and ultimately the family of Christ, the family with a capital F. It's very important to see this. Your small-scale F family matters for the sake of the capital. The capital family does not exist for the capital F family does not exist for the small F family. The small F family exists for the capital F family of Christ. This is why Jesus when he comes says no one can be my disciple who does not forsake his father and his mother and his children and his wife and his lands because he's creating a new family, an indestructible family, an everlasting family and he will not have any rivals. Small F family exists for the sake of capital F family. And to to miss this point is to turn our families into idols. This story is in Holy Scripture, not because it's a charming family story, but because it's a charming, charming family story gathered up into the capital F family story. And, and, And for us in the New Covenant, the whole of the Christian life is shaped this way. Baptism is the crucial event here. Baptism. Baptism means we die. And if we die, that means our narratives die. And then our families, small f, are displaced from center stage. Right? The story of Jesus, the son of David, is the central controlling story of the world. It is the narrative. Not Ruth's, not Boaz's, not yours or mine. And that's part of the reason this book ends the way it does, to teach us this. We are, you and I are, just as Ruth and Boaz were, we're significant because God in his hesed gathers up our little lives in all of our frailty and all of our sin and in all of the dignity and nobility of our lives. He gathers them up into his purposes, his grand purposes in securing a people in a land in Jesus Christ, the seed of David, your kinsman redeemer. And nothing can confer dignity on you like that. If you seek to establish your own life apart from Christ, you're not going to get this dignity. right? This is why Jesus says, if you lose your life, you will find it. If you lose your small F family, you will find it in the capital F family. This is what the genealogy teaches us. We have died. Paul says, our lives, our narratives are hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ appears, and not before, 
we and our lives and our narratives, which often look absurd now, will be revealed with him in glory. When will Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and Obad see the glory of their story? They are hidden in Christ, and when he appears in glory, Naomi will appear in glory, and Ruth and Boaz. And this is a great comfort, I think, amidst the confusions and the untidiness of life. Your story matters, but it doesn't matter because you can make sense of it. It matters because Jesus gathers you up into himself and to his capital F family, the church. So second thing, this means we see through a glass darkly in this life. Remember we said earlier in the series, and by the way, this is something that genealogy indicates. Providence is like Hebrew words. Hebrew is read from the right to the left. Providence is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. It can only be read backwards. Providence is inscrutable. It's it's mysterious to us. You know, the book of Proverbs says this. It says, a man's steps are from the Lord. And you would think, okay, my steps are ordered from the Lord. That means things will be pretty clear to me. The next half of the proverb is, how then can a man understand his way? It's precisely because God, the triune God, the infinite God, the God who escapes our grasp, the God who will not be domesticated, the God who is not just a big human being, it's it's precisely because he cares about that every hair on your head and every detail of your life and orders everything. It's precisely because that one is doing it that means it's inscrutable to you. You can't grasp it. A man cannot understand his way. Right? Or to put this in uh, colloquial terms, which I sometimes use with people, is, look, none of us know what we're doing. Right? You don't know what you're doing. People always tell me God is doing this in my life and that in my life and this in my life and that in my life. I always take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because of texts like this Proverbs text. There's a sense in which we are inscrutable to ourselves. We don't even know ourselves. We We can't even get to the bottom of our own motivations. We can't shepherd ourselves, right? We spend years and years in therapy trying to figure out what we think, who we are, what we're doing. So the this, this stuff is inscrutable to us. It's only when you get to David and finally to Christ that you can see something of the broader purposes, the rich and deep hesed, the kindness of God in these tragedies that befell Naomi and Ruth. Now, of course, you know, they tasted God's kindness in this life. I don't, want, I don't want you to despair. God shows us his kindness, but how it all fit together and what it meant and why they had to suffer, right? Why they had to suffer, that mostly, if not entirely, eluded them as it usually does for us. You know, notice something about this genealogy. If, you're, if you read, read this text carefully, you'll realize that whoever the author was, And we don't know who the author was. Whoever the author was, he or she added the genealogy generations after the events in the story take place. David wasn't born at the time this story happened. The writer said, thankfully, I've got a few hundred years perspective on the story, and I know the genealogy. I'll tack the genealogy on there at the end of chapter 4. And the genealogy will help orient readers to the story. 
So what was the writer doing when he added the genealogy? Guess what he was doing? He was reading providence backwards, right? So I can go from David back. I'm sitting over here by David when I'm writing, but the story takes place a few hundred years earlier. I'm going to write the back, the genealogy back into the story. All right, so this, this brings me to the third point here. There, these points are all related. There's an incompleteness, a, a kind of mystery to life, uh, a sort of unfinishedness to all of our stories until David's greater son comes again in glory and wipes every tear from our eyes. Right, Naomi lost a husband, and she lost two sons. Now, notice this. She doesn't get them back in the story. Right? This isn't Cinderella. She doesn't, there's no final accounting. There's no neatly tied up narratives in this life. I mean, you could say that this story has a happy ending, but you know what the genealogy tells you? It tells you that the happy ending is not the fullness of happiness, nor is it the ending of endings. When Christ appears in glory and not before, we will appear with them in glory. As charming and as delightful and as refreshing as God's hesed in their lives are, the story is deeply unfinished. So the last thing here, the last thing, and we've said this before, but I want to reiterate it as we close. Uh, Both Ruth and Boaz should stand as examples to us. They They are people we should seek to imitate. Right? Boaz, especially in his sacrificial generosity, you know, his love of the law, his obedience to the law, but also his willingness to go beyond the letter of the law. He pictures for us the work of Christ, our kin. And Ruth's loyalty to Israel's God and Israel's people is a model of Christian discipleship, of all-in Christian discipleship, of vowed commitment, of a person who knows that to believe in Christ is to believe in and to cling to what Augustine called the totus Christus, the whole Christ, head and body. You can't have Christ the head without having Christ in his members, the body. And if you love the members, you'll love the head. If you love the head, you'll love the members. Right? Ruth reminds us that Christianity is a social religion grounded in the life of the church. So both of them, Ruth and Boaz, they've sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And that same God, those same wings would hover over and overshadow Mary. And they would cause her to bring forth Ruth's human descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. Who knows what God will do if you take refuge under his wings? It may not be dramatic, but we know this. We know that in Jesus, Ruth's and Mary's offspring our ordinary, obscure lives are gathered up. And all these isolated, you know, individual details of our lives are given dignity. They're given an enduring quality. Right? One that will echo into eternity. We have a center for our lives. But the great paradox and mystery of Christianity is this, that it's a de-centering center. It's a center which is outside of yourself. It's a center which displaces the self. In Christ, though, that means he secures your name. 
It's unnerving at first to think of having to die with Christ and be raised with Christ and being displaced from the center. But Christ does this to secure your name, your identity, to secure our land and our inheritance and our place as his enduring seed. So praise be to the God of Israel who has not, who has not stopped showing his kindness, his hesed to the living and the dead. Amen.